All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today, including a look 10 years ago today, Vancouver's Night of Infamy, the 2011 Stanley Cup riot exactly 10 years ago today. we got some awesome guests on this today. I'll speak to police officers who were on the scene of the riot 10 years ago today. The BC Prosecution Service got a great guest from there. How they tracked down the rioters using videotape evidence. The charges that were laid, the court cases, the penalties that were handed down. That'll be fascinating. We had a lot of lessons learned after that riot. Former Attorney General Barry Penner on the show today, too. He was the Attorney General that night of the riot. His memories of a wild and crazy night and the days that followed. And your memories, too. Please phone me today on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail. What do you remember about the Stanley Cup riot 10 years ago today? Were you downtown at any point that day? Phone me and tell me what you saw. What do you think? What are your thoughts and memories on that riot 10 years later? Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail, and we'll play some of your calls here during the show. Here's the number to call, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. So we've got all that coming up and a lots more. But first, we start with step two of BC's reopening plan uh, non-essential travel, recreational travel allowed throughout the province. Once again, you can gather with up to 50 people at an outdoor gathering. Lots of changes in the COVID protocols kicking in today. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery. He is one of the lead cabinet ministers on this file, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ravi, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, what are the biggest changes in your mind that people are going to see today and going forward? Well, I think, uh, Mike, the biggest uh, piece is that people can travel around the province. Uh, and I know there's a lot of people who haven't seen loved ones uh, in a long time. And uh, and because of people getting vaccinated and cases coming down, uh, people are able to travel the province. Uh, of course, there's other things, uh, uh, indoor seated uh, organized events like movie theaters and banquet halls can uh, open up to 50 people. Restaurants can serve alcohol till midnight uh, in the indoor oh. sports games. Uh, teams can play games again. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of things that uh, are coming uh, as of today. Okay, outdoor gatherings up to 50 people as well, right? Outdoors. That's right. Uh, up to 50 people outdoor gatherings. Uh, so people can uh, gather for uh, a wedding outdoors or uh, a big barbecue even outdoors. Okay, what about the mandatory mask rule? That's still in place, right, for indoor public spaces? That, that's correct. Yeah, the mask rule remains, uh, uh, as you'll, your listeners will probably recall, when we laid out the restart plan, we put metrics beside every single stage of the plan. Uh, of course, they were provided by a provincial health office. Uh, and, and with that came kind of rough guidelines on what would happen in each. And we've been working with, uh, especially those in the private sector, but also nonprofit to, to kind of work out what are the details in each of the phases and how does that reflect their businesses. And those conversations have been going great. Okay, let's have a listen to Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday on some of the things that people are allowed to do now, now that we're into step two here starting today. Here is John Horgan. Step two means being able to host a birthday party with up to 50 people 
in your backyard or in a public outdoor space. It means that it will be safe to go to a movie with some friends. Or more importantly, we'll be able to do what we haven't been able to do for the past year, and that is watch our local sports teams in action. And that I'm very much looking forward to. Okay, John Horgan, they're speaking yesterday about step two of the reopening plan, which begins today. Speaking to Cabinet Minister Ravi Kalon uh, about that, uh, you mentioned that uh, new rules around uh, longer serving hours in pubs and bars, which a lot of people will be happy to hear about. Uh, we got indoor public dining again. We're hearing a lot from some of these businesses, Minister, about the, the crunch, the labor crunch they're experiencing, getting people to come back to work. There's a shortage of workers out there, and I know you're, you're key on that as the jobs minister. What can you say about that? Well, uh, Mike, uh, you know, with the last labor force survey that came out uh, right in the middle of the circuit breaker uh, showed that we were at 99% pre-pandemic employment levels. And so as we start opening up, uh, we know that some sectors have done very well throughout the pandemic and, and some have struggled. Hospitality and tourism, I think, is no surprise to everyone uh, listening that have had challenges. But as they start opening up, getting longer shifts, um, uh, seeing uh, needing more employees, uh, we're starting to see some challenges. And, uh, we, you know, we're monitoring this. I know the minimum wage uh, increase helps because it pulls those folks that perhaps are sitting on the sidelines in. Uh, but we've also heard from workers who are, you know, 15 months not really, you know, working, not really seeing other people in public spaces. And there's a bit of fear of coming back. And again, as we start restarting, uh, as case con- numbers continue to drop downward, we're hoping to see more of those people enter the workforce again. Okay, speaking of some of the fears or concerns that are still out there, I mean, a lot of the news up to date has has been great here in the last few weeks. I mean, we got the rolling averages for the cases and hospitalizations are down. The vaccine rate is up. It, it's all looking very positive, but we, we've still got some of those variant cases, variant causes of concern, variant cases of concern with COVID. Um, what are the, are, are there any trip lines here that could trip us up and, and send us backwards like i i noticed that the province is still encouraging people from outside of british columbia don't come here right do not travel to british columbia for recreational travel correct yeah thanks mike for raising that uh it's it's a message the premier has been making to all the premiers across the country which is um you know we're doing better but please don't come yet uh we're not yeah. ready for you uh, and I think that the other message that the Premier and Dr. Henry in particular shared yesterday was we want people to travel uh, now that we can. Uh, we want people to uh, explore British Columbia. But it's important to check out the community you're going to to ensure that they're ready to have people. Uh, and so people can go to uh, Hello BC, uh, which is a website that the province runs through Destination BC, uh, which has two key uh, information points for people. One, it gives information to people about uh, the community they're going to, whether there's any flags or, or uh, concerns from that community about welcoming guests. But second, it lets people, um, it gives people ideas on different places in the province to explore. Uh, we know that the traditional hotspots are already getting jam-packed, but there is so wow. much more BC has to offer. And if you're looking for ideas, uh, Hello BC is a, a great website to check out uh, options from. Okay, step two starting today, and then we look down the road to step three, which is set to start on July 1st. And then we'll see even more relaxation of some of these rules with increased capacity, indoor and outdoor gatherings, uh, Canada-wide recreational travel to be encouraged at that point, 
casinos opening up again, some business seminars and business meetings allowed to operate again. What do we have to, are we on track right now to hit that step three on July 1st with even wider uh, reopening? Yeah, Mike, well, the uh, metrics that we put in were minimums. Uh, you know, I think uh, for step three, the minimum was wanting 70% of people getting their first dose. And I think as of yesterday, we were at 75.9%. Uh, and so those are minimums. We want to see, obviously, 80 90% if we can. And so we're encouraging people to continue to get vaccinated, in particular those people that haven't got their first dose I think it's going to be critically important. Uh, the other piece we're watching closely, obviously, is around uh, international travelers and, and the border opening, Mike. And uh, the premier has been meeting weekly with the other premiers and, and the prime minister in particular, uh, saying, well, you know, just as in B.C., we've got these metrics on what we're looking for to get to next stages. We're hoping the federal government can provide some sort of certainty uh, for us on how they will measure and monitor both uh, when people can come and, and then who can come. And so we're hoping to hear more in the week. Oh, talking about step two, BC's reopening plan. My guest is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery. Phone line's open. You have a question about the reopening plan? Call me right now, 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Jason on the line in Burnaby. Hey, Jason. Hey, Mike. Uh, yes, emotionally, I'm ready to go back uh, to all the, you know, all the great stuff. But uh, uh, economically, financially, everything went up in price, so I'm probably not going back as crazy as I used to be. I really wanted to, but uh, took a big hit during the pandemic. So I want to support local, but I, I would think twice before I, I go out. Okay, thank you very much for the call. Minister, you talked earlier about some of the labor crunch that's out there, especially you hear from restaurants, other service industry jobs. They're just having trouble finding people and getting people to come back to work. You got any advice for them? I mean, you're the jobs minister. If people are having trouble finding workers, what do you think they should do? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a challenge, Mike. Uh, I've been uh, in so many meetings with uh, small business uh, representatives or, or associations, especially those in the, in the hospitality industry. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the last labor force uh, stats that came out showed a significant increase in, or not increase, but a significant number of young people uh, in particular that uh, uh, were unemployed. And, and so uh, I think there's going to be a little bit of patience required. But, of course, uh, we're looking at, how do we uh, put additional supports in for skills training or reskilling uh, workers so that they can get in and get into the, the workforce real quick? And uh, I would say is that if they're having challenges, of course, uh, they can reach out for their local associations. But WorkBC also is navigating people that are looking for work employment opportunities to those jobs as well. Okay, keep calling me on this 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Benny in Abbotsford. Hey, Benny. Hello there. Yes, Hi. Minister, uh, I'm going to follow up with the last caller there. Um, as long as the federal government is paying uh, up to one year in served benefits, how do you expect people to go back to work when they're getting $2,000 a month for staying home. How do you expect people to go back to work wearing masks all day long? And how do you expect people to go back to work to deal with the, the general public? Okay, Minister. Yeah, no, I know. I hear you. Thanks for that, Benny. Of course, that program is... Uh 
with the federal government. A lot of the programs that uh, have been put in place uh, rightfully to support people through a challenging time are, are coming close to an end. Uh, and uh, CERB certainly is coming close to an end. Uh, the wage subsidy program from the federal government that was put in place for employers uh, has been extended till the end of September. Uh, most of the supports, Mike, that we've put in place here in BC have been direct grants to businesses and people. Uh, wow. And in uh, the supports that we've put in place, uh, such as 25% reduction for liquor pricing or made permanent hiring for uh, new employees, tax credits, all those things are going to remain for the rest of the year. But uh, a lot of the programs like CERB are coming to an end. And so we will see people coming back to uh, the workforce uh, because of that. Okay, let's go to Doug on the line in Cloverdale. Hi, Doug. Yeah, hi. I'm a uh, solo uh, performer musician. And now that everything's opening up till about midnight and banquet halls and stuff, does that mean that the level of my music is allowed to go back up to where it was? The, the level? What do you mean? Well, there was, a, there was a limit that in a bar or something, that uh, TV, sports, or even solo musicians weren't allowed to be much more than the uh, talking volume, so that we're oh. top. Okay, Minister, so, do you, Minister, do you know? Uh, that's a great question, Doug. I, I don't know the detail on that. I um, I do know that that was in place because as the music got louder, people had to get louder, and and there was uh, concerns around uh, 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 spread of, of uh, the virus at that time. Uh, but that's a great question, Doug. I'm going to have to find out because I don't know the nuanced detail of that. Um, but we'll try to get that information for you, Mike, that you can share on the yeah. airwaves uh, when when we have it. Okay, let's do that. Let's go to Darren on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Darren. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Mr. Sure. Kalon, I'm wondering how you're going to start transitioning uh, jobs from the forestry industry into more sustainable types of work, because with all the old growth that's getting cut down, the lack of uh, forestry jobs, a lot of jobs are being sent to overseas with the raw log exports, so how are we going to transition okay. these loggers into repairing the forest? That have Minister, been you, Minister, you got the 20 seconds here. Oh, uh, that's a complex uh, question for 20 seconds, but I'll just say, Mike, that uh, we put the forestry intention paper out, uh, and I would uh, recommend uh, that, Darren, you have a check, uh, check that out. Uh, it's revitalizing and completely uh, re-looking at how we do forestry in B.C. Uh, for the better, in my opinion. And, and so it's really exciting to rethink about rethink forestry and how we're going to move okay. forward. And, uh, and so I suspect that, Darren, you might find that interesting. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Stay safe. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, later on the show today, we got more coverage of Vancouver's Night of Infamy, the 2011 Stanley Cup riot. It was exactly 10 years ago today. And we got some awesome guests coming up on that later on the show, including a police officer who was on the scene. I'll speak to the former attorney general who was the AG the night the riot broke out. I encourage you to call me on the buzz line today with your memories and comments on the Stanley Cup riot. Calls already coming in. Let's have a listen here. I'm personally still embarrassed by the way that was handled, but I'm putting it solely on the shoulders of our city council. In the 2011 riot, uh, the city was told not to create that fan zone, not to invite everybody into town, which they continued to do, and it just brought all these people in that all they wanted to do was drink and... And, and create havoc. I was working at Rogers Arena as a security guard. Myself and four others were on the Boston Bruins bench at the end of the game. 
I remember standing right next to Chara as she was being interviewed with the uh, Stanley Cup. And at the end of the night, when all the fans were gone and it was just family and friends, we were invited into the dressing room of the Boston Bruins uh, and had actually had a beer with them. <laughs> okay, well, that's nice you celebrated with the Boston Bruins. Their people were going snaky outside. Yeah, the Stanley Cup riot 10 years ago today. Keep calling me on that one today. Leave me a voicemail on the buzz line. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. All right, here we go now with Vancouver's proposed new residential parking fee and new annual vehicle pollution charges. And no more free parking on the street outside your home. The city looking at a $45 annual parking pass. Now, that, that'll be to start. You can better go up from there. Also on the table, annual pollution charges up to $1,000 for late model gas-powered vehicles, especially if you drive a truck or an SUV. Man, you better hang on your wallet here. Look at the city of Vancouver coming to get you here. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hiya, Chris. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thanks a lot for coming on. So this is just a plan now for now, right? The city looking for public input on this idea, correct? Yes, exactly. They're in the last phase of public consultation. So speak up now, folks. Right. So let's start with the parking fee. So $45 a year. And a lot of people might think like, oh, yeah, it's not really that much. No, they will think it's not that much because, you know, $45 a year, if you can afford a car with the rate of gasoline and insurance costs, you can probably afford that. However, that's just where it starts. And once it starts, where does it ever stop? And so that's our concern here. Uh, Obviously, there are already some parking fees in parts of Vancouver. This isn't where you're clogging up a major artery. But if you're on some sleepy little residential street and just parking out in front of the house that you live in, uh, if you get this started and you start rolling, where are these fees? is going to end so there's some concern there and then the big one of course is as you mentioned the so-called pollution fee between 500 and a thousand dollars to start per vehicle now right now they're saying it's just going to be on brand new trucks and suvs how they're going to figure out exactly if it's just been driven off the lot we don't know that yet uh, but this is the foot in the door uh, you wait in a couple of years they'll drop the, the age of the vehicle down and before you yeah. know it they'll be dinging 10 year old vehicles no I, that's exactly what I was thinking too I mean this is kind of thin edge of the wedge mm-hmm. get your foot in the door get some of these fees going maybe you'll, you don't whack everybody all at once and then it starts cranking up later on like when you take a look at the, this pollution this pollution fee Chris I mean okay so it's 500 bucks a year for what they call a moderately polluting new vehicle. So there's like a smaller SUV. And then $1,000 a year for a high-polluting vehicle. So you're talking what, like a, a pickup truck? Yeah, well, if you figure, uh, if you have, say, one of those Ford Super Duties, the diesels, uh, the big ones that a lot of tradespeople use, yeah, you could say that that uses more fuel and therefore is more polluting. This is the catch, though, too, is how are they going to know? Are they going to have to create their own version of a software? Are all of these meter maids going to have iPads now? Are they going to have to scan a sticker that you stick on the front of your windshield? Where's the registration supposed to be? Like, there's all sorts of administration that could potentially really whack this here. Okay. The other thing I'm trying to figure out here is this is supposed to be a climate change initiative to drive down pollution, but they say they're only going to put a pollution charge on a newer vehicle. 
Does that make any sense? Like, I thought newer vehicles are less polluting than, say, an older gas-belching older vehicle. Great question. So there's two sides to that, and I found this part quite interesting, in all honesty. They're saying that they only want to ding new vehicles now. Keep in mind, this is just now. Because if you're buying a brand-new vehicle, that therefore you can afford to pay for this tax. And if you're buying a gas vehicle that's brand-new, you should be punished for doing so, because don't you know you should have done the right thing and bought an electric vehicle? That's the thinking. Um, Conversely, they're also saying that they don't want to, right now, be charging older vehicles, because obviously you can't afford to have upgraded if you're driving an older car, so they in theory, don't want to be dinging the lower income people. But again, once this thing's in place and they realize they can make money off of it at City Hall, it'll just be a matter of days before they drop that requirement. Well, is this a pollution tax or a wealth tax then? I mean, if they're only going after people who can afford to buy a new vehicle, that sounds like more like a wealth tax than a pollution tax. It does. And there's an element of class warfare here, too, we need to keep in mind. So if you're in Vancouver proper and you're, say, staying in a suite, a basement suite, you're usually the one parking on the street. You're the renter, whereas the homeowner would probably get the driveway or the garage. So you're going to be dinged more so technically if you're a renter in this case. And again, right now it all sounds, you know, understandable. They're only going to hit people with brand new, very expensive SUVs. But this is how this starts. Keep in mind with the carbon tax that they started in 2008 that was supposed to reduce emissions and it was supposed to be revenue neutral. None of that is true. It's not helping the environment. They drop revenue neutral altogether and now they collect around $2 billion a year year from us. So this is very similar here in Vancouver. We need to stop it before it starts. Okay, the annual pollution fee that they're considering would only apply to gas-powered vehicles, right? So if you drive an electric or a hybrid, you would not have to pay this annual pollution fee. As of right now, but I also encourage people to go back and read the big report. I think it was like 370 pages or so, of which this is just a portion. And they were also talking about eliminating parking spots from new builds of condos and apartment towers for all vehicles. It didn't matter if it was electric or gasoline. And also with the toll wall that they're planning on building downtown between Clark and Burrard, and we're paying a million dollars for a consultant to do it, uh, we haven't heard yet if electric vehicles will be exempt there either. So this isn't just about pollution. This is about yeah. the war on the car, too. Well, yeah, because the parking fee that they're talking about, 45 bucks a year to park outside your own home, that would apply to electric vehicles and gas-powered vehicles, both. Sure sounds right. that way. And yeah. again, we, we need to remind ourselves there's a million reasons why people drive their personal vehicles. We can't just make yeah. assumptions. Okay, and when you talk about some of the other things that this city is working on, we've we've already talked on the show before about the mobility pricing idea where they would put up like a paywall around Vancouver, some kind of virtual toll booth system where they'd they'd whack you for daring to drive Mm -hmm. in the city. So, I mean, that's on the table. We've already got the highest gas taxes on the continent here already, and we're told that's to fight climate change. I mean, where does it end? I mean, parking fees, pollution fees, mobility pricing, gas taxes. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Exactly. Well, Vancouver is one of the most unaffordable places for normal people to live, like on Earth. So, And this is one of the reasons why, because government is trying to nickel and dime you every time you turn around. When you combine the the two carbon taxes plus all the other taxes, it's around 68 cents a litre for taxes in Vancouver. High, and that's highest in the on the continent. Highest in North, yeah, absolutely. Highest, highest in, in North continent. America. Chris Sims is my guest. Lots of phone calls. Omid on the line in Port Moody. Hello, how are you? First time caller, Mike. 
Hey, listen, cool. they're crazy there. We moved out of Vancouver because of the cost and the taxes. was just outrageous on the property tax. It's hurting the poor people, Mike. It's, uh, the, the new vehicles are 97% proof that they, they, uh, they're more efficient with the carbon. The, the uh-huh. high gas tax, it's just ridiculous to live in that, in that city. The mayor is pushing people out of there, moving to the suburbs like we did. Okay, Omid, thank you for the call. Well, I, I wonder about whether this is fair to lower-income people who live in Vancouver, Chris, because it's basically kind of a flat tax, right? I mean, if they're going to wallop you for parking and for a high-polluting vehicle, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, there's no income test on it, right? No, not that we yeah. are aware of, but that's also yeah. it's an issue, though, that they're parking on the street. Because like we said, usually it's the person parking the driveway that owns the, owns the house. So that's an issue too. Yeah, so like if, if you're parking on the street. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're renting a basement suite or something, yep. you're the you're probably the one who's parking on the street. So the owner of the home would get to park for free in yes. the driveway, and it's the renter who's got to pay for parking. Yes, which is right? a major issue. And he's, you know, your caller's right. A lot of people have moved out and much further out than he is too. Yeah, let's go to Ron on the line. He works in Vancouver. Hey, Ron. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? Well, uh, I'm I'm more concerned about is the city going to be changing all of their fleets of vehicles from the fire service to the police and to all the uh, the city city vehicles. You know, they're saying that they want to put this tax on on uh, on driving around and stuff like that. But what of our all their fleet vehicles? They're all all diesel. You're looking at one fire truck that's worth 1.8 million dollars coming in as an electric. Are they going to change 43 more fire trucks at 1.8 million dollars? Chris, got any thoughts on that? And then how do they pay for that? I know it's uh, it's really, really steep, these costs. And then also, which is really weird, uh, the same folks who want it all electrified are often against massive improvements to our hydroelectric system. So where are we going to get the power? Hmm. Okay, keep phoning me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Aurora in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, Mike. The first Hi. time calling. Um, cool. I've got a couple concerns that I'd like to point out. First of all, by them uh, uh, trying to make people not going downtown, only they're creating a community of rich people because that's the only yeah. people can afford it to go downtown, number one. Number two, they thought about the parking on top of your house or something else for the city to say. Then you come in and clean up your sidewalk. You come in and cut your grass on the sidewalk that I don't have to cut it since I have to pay for the parking on front of the house. Then you come in and do that because that's a free work that's been okay. a slave to the city. So what about that? Then the, what they don't pay us to take care of their sidewalks and their boulevards. Okay, Aurora, thanks a lot for the call. I, I, I appreciate it a lot. I like the point that she made, Chris, about whether they're going to turn Vancouver into a rich person's city if you're starting to wallop everybody with these fees. I mean, maybe the only people who could afford to pay them are rich people. It really is the case, sadly, and I say this as somebody who used to love wandering around Vancouver as a kid with my parents. Um, it's really, really unaffordable, and if you keep doing this, you're going to drive out average people. Okay, let's go back to your phone calls and speak to James in Vancouver. Hiya, James. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I haven't seen a transit bus with a trailer on it that'll take 4,000 pounds worth of tools yet, so when I see that, then I'll agree with what they're saying. <laughs> This is ridiculous. They're going to gut the city. I'm a tradesman, and I'm going to have to pay for all these passes for my employees to come into town. 
and I'm going to have to pass that on to the customers that I serve, and it's going to affect everybody inflationary. Any shipper is going to tack it onto their price for shipping. It's all going to go through the roof because of this. They're so short-sighted and so single-minded about their 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 yeah. green taxes and stuff like that. They're just going to they're, they're going to gut the entire city. Okay, James, thanks a lot for a good call. I think that's a really good point, Chris. And what about that? Like if someone's working or is a tradesperson or whatever, maybe they're driving a truck as part of their living, they're driving into the city. Now you're talking about whacking them for parking and pollution and mobility fees. I mean, how does that hit working people? It hits the working people both when they have to pay it, as the tradesman just described, and for the customer. This money comes from somewhere. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, bureaucrats seem to think that there's a magical fountain of it. It isn't. It comes down to you and me paying for these things some way or another. Okay, Joe in Vancouver. Hey, Joe. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, it's like the parable. They're boiling us like frogs with this nickel and dime stuff. We run yeah. a small business, and your last caller's bang on. I mean, there's only so much you can pay staff. You want to give people a good wage so they can live in the city. But every time the city does something like this, it just crushes the ability to hire people locally so they move out and at some point we look at it and go why would we have our office in vancouver i'll move to coquitlam or langley or richmond where the tax structure is better they're they're not only are they killing the people that can't afford it but they're killing the businesses that want to employ people in this city okay thanks for the call especially right now chris as we emerge from this covid19 pandemic a lot of people lost their jobs they lost their hours We've already heard about a labor crunch. There's a lot of people having difficulty finding workers and keeping good workers. And you start piling on new fees, could that make it even tougher? Yes, of course. And just imagine if you're trying to make ends meet and you're renting out that basement suite and that's your vehicle out front and because you work shift work and you can't rely on public transit, this is going to really nuke people from either end. They really need to rethink this. Okay, George and Burnaby. Hi, George. Hi there, Mike. Uh, a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, I have a quick question, and I hope they're listening. You know, do they ever think about the middle class? You know, the young adults coming out of university, starting at the minimum wage, trying to create opportunities for themselves. You know, because I have a lot of friends that have decided to move out of Vancouver altogether, especially right now with the COVID, where they have the opportunity to work from home. They rather live somewhere else where they don't have to pay these many taxes. You know, and these people are part of uh, middle class, you know, the class that actually holds yeah. up the, the economy, you know. Okay, George, thank, thank you. Thanks for the call, George. 30 seconds, Chris. Yeah, unfortunately, it goes hand in hand. There's the term hollowing out of the middle and working class, and there's a hollowing out of the downtown core of Vancouver, and this is part of it. It's sad. Okay, where does this go now from here? I mean, this is a public input process, so people should make their voices heard on this, right? This is critical. Yeah. Pick up the phone send an email, be firm, but be polite, and tell them to not do this. Because if we don't, they're just going to roll through. Okay, we're following it closely. Chris, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, it's the 10-year anniversary, Vancouver's Night of Infamy, Mm -hmm. the 2011 Stanley Cup riot, 10 years ago today. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember, first of all, I Watching our new news uh, that day and noticing that people were drinking uh, in large numbers in the morning, starting <laughs> in the morning, and yeah. thinking, you know, this that's not good. Uh, this could lead to some uh, serious um, uh, action or trouble. And then I remember watching and listening. I was doing the 5 o'clock hit on something 
nothing to do with the Canucks and with Chris Gillison. Chris was doing a live report from the fan plaza down there and, and pointed out the mood down there was a lot different than had been on previous nights. And I think that was because so many people had gathered so early and had started drinking very early. So the, the crowd was in a, was intoxicated very early on. And I'm just saying everybody, oh, that means there's going to be a riot. It's just that it was different that day yeah. than it had been in previous days. Yeah, there was a different vibe started to build early. Mm-hmm. And they had the fan zone down there, yeah. outside, bacon in the sun, getting yeah. hammered. And you could just sort of feel it building through the day. And I remember I was, I was on NW that week. And I remember a couple of days before that, a couple of callers phoning up and saying, are they ready? Mm-hmm. Are the cops ready in case this thing turns hairy? Because it happened once before in 1994. Yep. And I remember some other people phoning in on the open line saying, like, oh, don't even, don't even, uh, you're just instigating something. There's not going to be a riot. You don't. You just never know. No, you never know. And there's, of course, a lot of second guessing about should this uh, this fan zone have been cleared earlier? Yeah. Should it even been allowed to take root down there? Uh, should the police have moved in early to to quell some of the early? Well, they didn't have enough the cops crowd? either. No, there was was there was there you know enough assigned. A lot of this was hindsight, but uh, it was an extraordinary uh, event, of course, and a, a black eye in, in Vancouver's history. And, and hopefully that never happens again. But boy, what a night! Okay, well, we got some great coverage on that coming up later on the show. I'm going to speak to a former police officer who was in the thick of it down there that night, and he'll tell you some hair raising stories. I guarantee you on that. And I'm on encouraging you to call the buzz line today with your thoughts and memories on the riot 10 years later let's listen to a couple of calls here keith we're already getting lots of calls on this on the stanley cup riot let's have a listen i was working as a for coach mountain bus bus driver driving the 100 route which is in south vancouver along marine drive primarily and i couldn't have been so much so much happier to be out of the downtown core but i remember a message coming on our little screen in the bus and all it said was all buses in the downtown core get out by any means possible apart from the horror of it all the major embarrassment i was feeling the major embarrassment that the whole world was watching these idiots and that canada was uncivilized that yeah, was kind of embarrassing, the city burning. Yeah, well, and it was the second riot, right? There was yeah. a riot in 1994, uh, which was pretty bad as well. So, no, Vancouver's got a lot of shame uh, as a result of these uh, two unfortunate events. Okay, keep phoning me on the buzz line on that today. That was fascinating to hear that bus driver, though, to say all buses get out by any means possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never get, heard that before. Get out of the downtown, man. Okay, keep phoning me on the buzz line on that one. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. With your Vancouver riot memories, 604-331-2899. All right, Keith, we talked earlier on the show today about Vancouver taking a look at possible parking fees, also pollution fees for mm-hmm. late model trucks and SUVs. I think I think a lot of municipalities across the country are going to be watching this with keen eyes because all municipalities 
and cities are going to have a revenue pro- uh, problem. They've had one in this pandemic. You've seen Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart early on in the pandemic make his cap in hand pleas to the government for more money. So all re- all governments of every strip are wrestling with revenue problems, and they're looking at unique ways to fill that gap. Some of this, I mean, I think a lot of it is you know genuine climate change policies, but it's also a nice way for cities to collect a lot of money in very creative ways that have never been seen before. So it's going to be very interesting if Vancouver can pull this off and whether or not it's, it spreads to other municipalities. Well, I think it's a cash grab yep. dressed up as a climate change initiative. I mean, they're talking parking fees, pollution fees, uh, mobility pricing. We already got the highest gas taxes in the continent already. So, I mean, man, they're just squeezing Well, you know, the people. gas tax is a good example. It's just It's sort of just blended in now. Nobody yeah. really talks about the gas tax. It's just part of your life, the carbon tax. Now does this become the next level of taxation sure. that gets baked into your daily life? And it'll be it'll be fascinating whether uh, there's any political consequences from this or is it just people accept it. Okay. It will not go forward without a fight, though. That's for sure. Let me play uh, Vancouver City Councilor Lisa Dominato's comment on it here. And here she is uh, criticizing the plan. It's going to create more inequities and affordability issues and particularly target people who can least afford it, particularly individuals who don't have access to off-street parking, renters, people who may need a vehicle because they're caregivers, because they're tradespeople. Yeah, okay, renters All is an interesting points. one. Yeah, I mean, what if you're living in a basement suite or something? you got to park on the street. You get walloped with this, uh, this yeah, parking Councilor fee. Yeah, Dominato makes some very good points there. There's a lot of pushback uh, and ways to do this. It's interesting that you recall the 2017 provincial election. The NDP scrapped the tolls on the bridges. Very popular with people. As a result, they're in power now. And uh, it'll be interesting. Is it, does this give Dominato and her colleagues uh, a great issue come the next election to push back against Kennedy Stewart and others who vote for this? Yeah, that, those mobility fees, too, that the city's studying, you can bet that's going to be an election issue next year for sure. Okay, speaking of John Horgan, who famously promised to get rid of the tolls, yeah, it was it was political stroke of brilliance there. I think it put him into the premier's office. I think Bob right. Dewar, his special assistant, the brainchild. Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very smart of him to do that. I always remember uh, Christy Clark trying to push back on that, saying like, "Oh, this is bad that they're going to cancel these tolls." <laughs> and I think the NDP must have loved it when she said that. Okay, here is Horgan. By the way, okay, we're into step two now of the reopening plan starting today, and here is Premier John Horgan uh, speaking yesterday about what are the next steps we're going to have in reopening the economy, reopening the province. What about that border? Is it time to can to reopen the Canada-U.S. border? Here's what he said yesterday. Ambassador Hillman, the Canadian representative in Ottawa, and I talk regularly. We're scheduled to talk again this week. And on Thursday, uh, the Prime Minister has asked the Premiers to come together to talk about uh, reopening the borders, uh, land, sea and air. And of course, uh, we're very interested in those discussions. We've been working on it uh, uh, quietly because, uh, you know, there is anxiety in the community. I know that. I feel that. And we want to make sure we're on the right track. Okay, your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, uh, it's heating up. There's pressure building. Uh, tremendous pressure being applied by the tourism sector because uh, this would be the second summer to be wiped out. So they definitely want this border open. Uh, international tourism is what uh, is a make or break for uh, for the tourism sector. Uh, domestic uh, tourism just doesn't have the numbers and revenue generating to the point where that international does. So, yeah, in Thursday meeting, virtual meeting between the premiers and the prime minister about opening up the border. It's interesting. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last week said he would be in favor of that when people had two doses, fully vaccinated. 
here's here's an interesting uh, contrast. In the United States, you've got almost 50% of the population is is uh, fully vaccinated with right. two doses. In right. Canada, it's about 11%. Yeah. We uh, took a different strategy, which was to get as many first doses in the arms of people as possible. Second doses were, were less a priority. We're now in our second dose phase, but we're in BC, I think we're at 12 or 13%. We're, almost all the vaccines every day are second doses. But to get to second doses of, of to 75%, say, through the summer is going to be a very tough chore. But, you know, we're getting more vaccines. But I do think now the pressure to open the border is like never before. So I'm, I think, you know, July, probably mid-July, I would bet, for, for opening this up again for people with full vaccinations. Okay, well, tell you what, let's open the phone lines on that right now. And so all the topics that we covered there, we talked about the step two of the reopening plan in British Columbia, which takes place today. So non-essential travel throughout the province allowed again. You can gather in larger groups. we got later serving hours in bars, pubs, and restaurants. All right, phone lines are open to Keith Baldry. Baldry's Beat 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Fred on the line in Surrey. Hey, Fred. Hey, Meg, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Go ahead. Well, you know what? I think all politi- politicians from all levels of government, they have gone crazy. They've gone mad, especially uh, Mayor Stewart. They are trying to bring tax after tax after tax in every arena of this uh, operation. And what's going to happen is if the voters of Vancouver approve it, it's going to permeate into the entire province and every municipality, every city is going to do the same. Taxpayers are tired of taxes. There, there is no quality of living anymore. They can't afford it. The cost of living is so high. What's going on in this province? There is no leadership. There is only okay. money. Okay, yeah, thanks I, a lot for the call. I'll go back to my earlier comment. All municipalities are going to be watching what unfolds here. Yeah. And what happens at the next municipal election? If those who back this type of tax scheme uh, are reelected, that will embolden other municipalities and other, other councillors to do the same thing within their own environs. If the people who concoct this scheme and vote for it are defeated, that's going to kill this uh, in other jurisdictions. So there's lots riding on this. Well, the next election in the city of Vancouver is, is the fall of 2022, so just over a year from now. And you can bet this is going to be on the agenda. Well, if Lisa Dominato and her colleagues uh, can mount an opposition to this and say this is what the election should turn on, um, well, that's going to have an impact right across the I mean, you got John Cooper running for mayor under the NPA banner, the former park, uh, the Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. I had him on the show here mm-hmm. last week, said he's going to basically go to war on this uh, mobility pricing it's issue. It's not a bad issue to go to so, war on. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, keep taking your calls. Let's go to uh, Bob in Aldergrove. Hey, Bob. Yeah, hi, Mike. Hey, just wanted to make a comment about the, uh, the Phase 2 opening. I mean, yeah. I think it should be opened up even more, like at this point and the reasons to it you i'm sure you remember back before the may long weekend and bonnie henry and everybody was saying that there was going to be a, a third like a big wave about two to three weeks after the long weekend because of people not socially distancing etc and that's clearly been shown not to be the case and if you believe in the vaccine and the science behind it uh clearly we should be opened up. I mean, at least with now okay. at 76%, right? I yeah. mean, tell me, tell me how I'm off on that. Okay, thanks for the call. Oh, well, first of all, they didn't predict there would be... Um a wave after the Victoria Day weekend. They expressed fears that I there, think they could, were concerned. there could be. There yeah. could be. They did not predict there would be. And Bonnie Henry it doesn't really predict anything. Uh, so, no, there was a concern that that could happen. It didn't happen. 
And, the, and no. Bob's right. It, it did not happen. And that's one big reason why we're going to step two, because the numbers have started to go down. The reason why we're not reopening even more is we're reopening to a degree where, where people are going to be allowed to gather in greater numbers indoor, uh, outdoors, up to 50 people. There's going to be more activity and more contacts. And why there's a bit of a delay until the next step is we want to, Dr. Henry and others want to see an incubation period that occurs after this reopening, uh, which is 14 days. So it's actually going to be about 17 days before, before July 1st. And they're going to track what the numbers are going to be like starting about a week from now. If the numbers start to go upwards again, then there may be some hiccups here. Uh, but if they continue to go down, all th- systems are go for reopening even more on July 1st. And then we're going to, they're going to keep an eye on the numbers. And with the expectation, the numbers will actually go up in July and August to a degree because of more contacts and more activities and people gathering in, in larger numbers, but not to the point of being that concerned. And right. I expect that they'll start to go down again at the end of August, which sets the stage for the big reopening on September 7th. Right, and that'll be pretty much a full reopening by yep. that point. Now, okay. it doesn't mean we're going to have 18,000 people at a Canucks game necessarily, but you're going to have the Canucks playing in front of thousands of people. Okay, let's go to Lucy on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Mike. Hi. Well, I am also anxious to go down there across the border. I have property down there. It's been vandalized. Uh, it's pretty difficult to organize tradespeople from this side of the border for the other side of the border to get them in there and do work and have an expected, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going down there to do shopping or sightseeing or whatever. I am just have investment down there with my property, and I'm just anxious to get down there and see that it's taken care of. And I think they can do that safely also by, you know, monitoring the people that are going across both north and south and by looking to see if they'd have their second dose of vaccine and proving it by showing the card. Okay, thank you very much for the call. Yeah, interesting. You just take a look at Washington State. Um, They've got about 49%, 48% fully vaccinated. I think the first dose is around... 67 percent of last time i checked around seattle far more people on the west side of, of washington are vaccinated than the east side uh but again washington uh, the u.s does not have as high first dose numbers as canada does and again and but they've got more double dose numbers than canada does. but before we get to that open border do we not have to have the vaccine passport system in place well, that's an interesting question. I mean, perhaps that's that that could be, very well be the case. Joe, it'll be interesting what the next time Joe Biden's asked about this, what his take is. He seems to be using July fourth as a as a benchmark for measuring his vaccination rollout scheme. Uh, and again, perhaps that's what he's going to be using for opening up the border. But the economic interests of both countries are really uh, tied up on opening that border, and that's playing a huge role in this as well. Okay, we just got a minute left here, John and Langley. Hi, John. Go quickly, please. Hi, uh, gentlemen. Just one question. With all these uh, uh, taxes, the carbon taxes and, and all the taxes and our gas, et cetera, et cetera, this myriad of taxes, can anybody, regarding the environment and especially the carbon tax, can anybody down there tell me how it's helping our environment? Because I just don't understand it. I don't okay. see it. Thanks. Yeah, well, the emissions continue to climb even though we have a carbon tax, but uh, the expectation is as the tax gets more and more, it just more 
motivation for people to use their vehicles less and get out of the get out of their cars. Thanks, Keith. Talk to you tomorrow. All right, that's Keith Baldry, and that's Baldry's beat. Thanks a lot for all your calls there. You didn't get through. Phone the buzz line six zero four three three one buzz is the number 604-331-2899. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about one of Canada's most notorious murder mysteries now. Who killed Barry and Honey Sherman? The date, December 15th, 2017. Exactly four and a half years ago today, the millionaire power couple both found dead in their Toronto mansion. This case remains unsolved. I've got the great reporter Kevin Donovan standing by here. We got some new developments in this case, but first, let's go back to the early days of this mystery. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Catherine McDonald. It was December 15th, 2017, when the 75-year-old founder of pharmaceutical company Apotex and his 70-year-old wife were found by a realtor in a seated position with leather belts around their necks tied to this pool railing inside their North York mansion. I can say that uh, we did not observe any signs of uh, forced entry to the to the building, um, and so uh, at this point, uh, indications are that we have no outstanding suspect to uh, be going after. That comment prompted a number of newspapers to report that police had an operating theory that this was a murder-suicide. The Shermans' four children lashed out at their parents' funeral. We've had to navigate through a terrifying maze of non-information, an unfounded speculation. To say that anyone jumped to any premature conclusions is just outright wrong, and it's a shame that it was interpreted that way. The children hired lawyer Brian Greenspan, who brought in a group of former detectives to run their own investigation. It was six weeks before police formally announced what the children felt from the start. We have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide investigation. Okay, that report there from Global News. The deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman remain unsolved to this day. Uh, Let's discuss now with my guest, Kevin Donovan. Kevin is the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star, one of the great reporters on this story. He's the author of the book, The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. And I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Kevin, thanks a lot for coming on. So thanks for having me on today. Okay, Kevin, can you remind people for our listeners here in Vancouver, who were these people? I mean, they were quite well known in Toronto. Can you just paint a little picture of who they, who these people were? Uh, absolutely. If you go into a pharmacy in Canada, uh, chances are uh, if you get a generic drug, it's going to be made by a company called Apotex. Barry Sherman uh, founded that in the early 1970s. He grew it for all the years since to a multi-billion dollar uh, uh, generic empire, uh, made some, some uh, uh, drugs uh, themselves, but basically they were these generic um, uh, versions of a brand name pharmaceuticals. He and his wife, Honey, they married in the 70s, uh, uh, very well-known philanthropists uh, uh, in the Jewish community, but also uh, gave money to other to universities and, and very supportive uh, Pretty low-key. I had only briefly heard of Barry, had never heard of Honey when I got on this case. Okay, four and a half years ago today, uh, Kevin, their bodies discovered in their Toronto mansion. And as you heard in that report, there was some early speculation that maybe it was a ritual suicide. I mean, who knows? But the police later saying that there's a murder investigation. What a strange case. I mean, have the police been able to make any any headway on this thing? Because as you heard in that story, is that there was no sign of a forced entry in the in the mansion. 
Yeah, I, I mean, and I've been on this for the since the bodies were discovered three and a half years ago. Uh, the police say they're making headway. Uh, every six months, I go back to court to get more of the search warrant documents unsealed. Uh, most recently, the police uh, said that they have done another international warrant called a production order. They won't say which country uh, that they're looking for information. They say the case is active and ongoing. To me, it, uh, at times, I, I feel that, uh, that they're spinning their wheels, but they say they have a theory of the case, they have an idea of what happened, and now they're trying to prove it. Okay, as we heard in that report there, Kevin, that the murder scene, I mean, this, this is a story that's almost feels like it could be like a Hollywood movie, but the, the bodies were found near the pool, the indoor pool in this mansion, and there were, there were like belts, they were hanging from belts, right? That's right, but... What I found in my reporting is that though they were, I mean, they were staged in a, an upright uh, seated position with a belt around their neck looped above a low railing right. uh, above them, both men's belt. One is, I think they're both Barry's belts. Uh, one was upstairs. One was on his body uh, the time that they were attacked. But what I've, I've learned more recently is that that was not how they were killed. There was a, a thin ligature mark on their necks underneath the belt. Uh, some ligature that was used uh, and then removed. So that uh, makes wow. it one un- try to understand how the police could have thought that this was a murder-suicide. It clearly was not. Yeah, do you think that, I mean, is there any suspicion that whoever did this, that's maybe what they wanted investigators to think, that maybe they had tried to set this scene up so it, w- it would look like a suicide? Yeah, I, I think so. I think yeah. uh, that it was staged in that manner, uh, to give the killer or killers some time uh, uh, to cover tracks and get away. Okay, unbelievable. Speaking to Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star, is a great reporter on this story. His book is The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Okay, Kevin, let's talk about some of the, the, the recent developments here in the story uh, in the headlines this week. And And you were the guy who went to court to try and get some of the documents related to the the will here, right, from Barry Sherman's will, and this went, it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, right? Yes, it did, and uh, we were successful, uh, myself and the Toronto Star, last Friday with a, quite a, uh, a, a wonderful unanimous ruling for the public of Canada. The importance of the openness of courts was uh, reaffirmed. What happened was six months after uh, the Shermans uh, were murdered, I wanted to see if there was a will, uh, I've done this in many other cases before, but this time I was told, no, there's a sealing order on this file. And I, I sometimes act myself uh, for the star, although I'm not a lawyer. I uh, argued at one level of court, lost, uh, went to the Ontario Court of Appeal a couple of years ago, and I won there. Uh, and then the Shermans appealed. They said that they did not want this information out because if it came out, there would be kidnapping, uh, uh, perhaps death to the to the uh, the family members uh, or the ex- uh, trustees of the estate, also called the executors. And uh, we argued mm. that there was no evidence that that would happen. And uh, and the court uh, unanimously, the Supreme Court of Canada, found in our favor. And so now we have those documents. Okay, and just reading about the documents that have now been disclosed because of your work on, on digging on this, Kevin. It says. Uh, we discovered that uh, Barry Sherman, he left his entire estate to his four adult children to be split equally. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, Had Honey uh, survived Barry, then she would have uh, 
in effect, receive most of, of the money, which is not unusual. Uh, there, there are a few parameters around uh, the, her uh, who would decide how much she would get. But but with Honey gone, then the estate goes divided equally among the four adult children. Uh, there's a son, Jonathan, and then uh, three daughters, Alexandra, Kaylin, and uh, Lauren. And so what, what I'm interested in is that the police have said in this other court hearing the, over the search warrants that the estate of Barry and Honey Sherman, that the will, the estate, that is part of their investigation. So I wanted to see what was in it. Now I found that, and, and uh, now uh, I keep on looking for more clues. Okay, the title of your book is the the billionaire murders. Um, is that how much these? How much were, was this couple worth? Were they were they billionaires? Yeah, the financial press had put them at the time of death around four point seven billion dollars Canadian. But wow. my uh, sources say that it's actually at least double that, probably more like ten billion. Barry had, in addition to his ownership of of the generic pharmaceutical company. He had his finger in so many uh, pots uh, in Canada and around the world, real estate, uh, investments in in companies, uh, all all sorts of things. And so that is not reflected in these documents because most of his wealth is part of a secondary will, uh, which is completely legal. It's the the primary will that we've looked at, and that says there's about $127 million, which for, for me... Uh, obviously, that's a lot of money, but for him, that is what a judge referred to as chump change. Right. And now that this, uh, the, the details of this will have been disclosed, is that helpful at all in cracking this case, do you think? Well, I mean, the police, I'm assuming, already have access to this information. Right. So uh, for me, uh, when I get this sort of information revealed, then uh, more sources uh, come to me, sometimes sources I've already interviewed sometimes news sources, and that's the process I'm in right now. So stay tuned for more stories uh, in the Toronto Star. Okay, speaking to Kevin Donovan, the fine investigative reporter for the Toronto Star there, the murder mystery here that shocked Toronto and uh, all of Canada, Barry and Honey Sherman, four and a half years ago today, their bodies were discovered in their Toronto mansion. So uh, where does this go from here, Kevin? I mean, this this story is just such a shocker, and the, the details of it, like I said, it's almost like it's out of a murder mystery novel or a movie or something. Four and a half years on, I mean, where is the investigation at right now? And do you think it'll be solved? Well, I do think it will be solved at some point. Uh, I think the police have, the police have said they have a theory and they're, they're trying to prove it. I think they have not proved it to the point that a Crown attorney would take it to court. Where the investigation is now, the police are no longer conducting uh, interviews with you know, vast numbers of people. They have one detective who is analyzing all the information they receive in from their previous search warrants and production orders, cell phone uh, information, uh, tracking stuff, uh, video, all sorts of things. So one uh, lone detective on this, who I profiled a couple of months ago, and, uh, you know, that does not inspire a lot of confidence in me, but but he seems like a, a bright uh, the young detective and and uh, he does have some more senior people overseeing him what what have your sources told you about that crime scene i mean uh there was no obvious signs of a break-in at the mansion that day uh the bodies found like you said posed in almost kind of a, a ritualistic fashion or maybe it was meant to look like a suicide uh, that's got to be frustrating for 
for investigators and detectives on the case. It doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of physical evidence there, or, or was there? Well, there, there were lots of fingerprints and palm prints mm. that were taken by the police, and then the private detective group working for the Shermans that you mentioned at the top of this segment, uh, they found uh, 25 or 30 more and passed those on to police. The six weeks that they lost between the time of the discovery of the bodies and deciding it was actually a double murder, that has got to have hurt this investigation. Uh, and as far as, as, as the crime scene, I just feel that it was not properly analyzed. Uh, and if it had been, they would have announced uh, that day uh, that we're uh, investigating this as a double murder. But that's yeah. the, you quoted that officer at the top saying that, uh, you know, no sign of forced entry. Well, you know, that doesn't um, mean a lot. Uh, the Shermans often didn't lock their doors. Uh, so uh, there, there's just a lot of... of um, problems with the way this okay. is investigated from the start. Kevin, it's a fascinating case. Congratulations on all your great work on it, and uh, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, you bet. Kevin Donovan there, Chief Investigative Reporter at the Toronto Star, with the latest developments on one of Canada's most notorious murder mysteries there, Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, check out his latest work on this. Follow me on Twitter. I've just retweeted it there for you at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S M Y T H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Vancouver's night of infamy now. The 2011 Stanley Cup riot. Exactly 10 years ago today, June 15th, 2011, the riot only lasted five hours that night but it caused lasting trauma to vancouver and to british columbia especially to the citizens who tried to stop the rioters that night and were assaulted the individuals who were trapped in buildings downtown many of them legitimately and reasonably fearing for their lives the business owners who saw their businesses attacked and looted the police officers who were outnumbered that night many of them assaulted Let's go back in time here now. You're going to hear Global News reporter 10 years ago tonight, Chris Galis here. Have a listen. We just heard a big explosion uh, from the scene of where that burning car was right in front of the Canada Post building. I'm not going to show you that right now because we've got a van in the way, but there's a big fire going on down there right across the street here. They've broken out a significant number of the windows in the Bank of Montreal building. You can see uh, a bunch of people who are uh, watching and recording it on their on their phones, and it's... Uh, it's really stunning that so many people are staying down here and if not actually throwing rocks and bottles at the windows, participating by recording it. And you have to wonder if that incites the people who are doing it to continue doing it. Okay, Global News, Chris Galis there 10 years ago today, the Stanley Cup riot. So much to talk about about this shameful night. Let's talk now about the investigation, the court cases, the penalties that were handed down and the lessons learned from this event. What a great guest I've got for you. Gordon Comer on the line. Gordon is Crown Counsel with the BC Prosecution Service, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Gordon, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Okay, I really appreciate it a lot to get your expertise and your input on that. Let's talk about this investigation, first of all, in the, in the aftermath of this event. I mean, this was a huge, a huge investigation, right? That's correct. Um, it was one of the largest in Canadian history. And, uh, and uh, after the, of course, after the police investigate 
Uh, they'll send their investigative reports to the Crown recommending charges against people. We approve charges and take those to the courts, and then the courts impose the penalties. So we're sort of the middle of the criminal justice system, if you will. Okay. And there. What, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, what I was going to say is that just... Um, there was, it was a very traumatic time. People were upset. They, you know, Vancouverites were traumatized by this and they cared a lot about it and they wanted, they wanted the police to find these rioters, prosecute them right away and, you know, and, and get on it. And it was difficult because it was such a huge investigation. There were so many, uh, rioters that were eventually charged. I think we ended up charging, uh, 300 adults and youths. And uh, we couldn't really explain too much about what we were doing, but we did after the prosecution concluded in 2016, we released a report to help people understand the, ba- the background of the investigation and prosecutions. Yeah, it was a great report. It, it really sort of broke down exactly the, how the investigation proceeded. There are a lot of charges here, as you mentioned, Gordon, 300 adults and youths who were eventually charged in the riot. 294 of them were convicted, a very high conviction rate here. And when you yeah. think about a crime scene, man, this wasn't just one one scene where this riot unfolded. I mean, this this took place literally like in, in hundreds of different places around the downtown. Yeah, that's right. Um, it wasn't just investigating one riot, but the police identified about 297 discrete riot events. And for example, the London drugs was one of those. And that involved 316 rioters looting it. So it was an enormous, enormous. There was 112 businesses, 122 vehicles were damaged, and 52 assaults were investigated. Okay, it's that's, a, that's incredible. Let's talk about some of the evidence that was collected here. And, and crucial to this was the photographic and the video evidence. And how many hours of video from this riot was uh, obtained? Well, by 2011, uh, most people had a smartphone with a with a camera, and yeah. so they obtained. 5,500 hours of video of the riot from 500 different sources, different people who had taken that. And if you were a police officer and you were going to go through that, it would take you three years full time just to watch it once. So it was an enormous amount of video evidence. And uh, what they did is they processed that by tagging all of the the suspects um, just with physical descriptors and then they could track those people throughout the course of the night in these different locations. Okay, it was amazing how they were able to do that with the, the large amount of video evidence that was collected, and it led to, as you mentioned earlier, 300 people being charged. What was the most common offense there? Was I know that rioting is a, is a, a criminal offense. That's an actual charge, right, under the criminal code, rioting? That's correct, and it's a very serious charge. It's For most of these people, it was the most serious charge that they faced. And you have to have a lot of evidence of more involvement than just standing around. Um, so it involved really bringing together and showing that these people knew what they were doing. They were, wander- they were going from place to place, participating in different ways. So 298 of them were charged with rioting. There was a lot of arsons, a lot of mischief, which is, uh, damage to property um, and theft and a few others. Oh, and masking. A lot of the uh, riders masked themselves, so they right. they thought they wouldn't couldn't be identified. Uh, the nice thing about this, the tagging and the descriptors is if you go back earlier enough in the evening, usually you could find uh, a picture of them where they weren't masked. 
So oh, okay, we had a lot of people charged. Most people, most of the rioters who were charged pled guilty. There were some that went went to trial. What was the uh, the eventual outcome of, of these cases? Like, did people people go to jail? Did they get fined? What was the typical fine or, or sentence that was handed handed down? Yeah, there was um, for the adults. Uh, there's 54 youths who were charged, and they're treated differently in the system. But for the adults, if you look at the 246 adults who were charged, um, just about half, 47%, were given jail terms. Wow. And for almost the other half, 46%, they were given a conditional sentence order. And that is a term of imprisonment that you serve conditionally on strict conditions in the community. And if you breach that, you're brought back before the judge and the judge can say, well, you're going to serve the rest of your time in jail then. So um, they, were, they were dealt with uh, very uh, seriously by the courts. The courts took this very seriously. Yeah, and when we look back on this now, there was a lot of, con- lot of charges, a lot of convictions, an incredible, uh, challenging technical investigation. What would you say are, are some of the lessons learned uh, from this experience there at, at the BC Prosecution Service? Well, I think one of the best things we learned how to do uh, very effectively is to, is to package and present this photographic evidence in the courtroom. Uh, it's a very powerful tool. Uh, it doesn't forget. It doesn't, uh, it's not biased. It just records. And, you know, three years later, you've still got it. And you can look at it, and the judge can look at it and say, here's what I see. And it's a very powerful tool. We learned a lot about how to use that. Uh, we also learned the importance of ensuring that we have the full investigative files from the police before we approve charges. Um, and we also learned that we wanted to help the public understand in these sort of mass protests or, or riots that there, if there's going to be a lot of video evidence, that's not going to make the prosecution quick. It's not going to speed up the prosecution. In fact, it might even just make it a little bit longer because if you have to gather all that and process it, that takes time. But we want to do that because it's effective and it makes sure that you hold these people account for all of their unlawful conduct. Gordon, Col- a bit of it. Gordon, it's been great to have you on here with your thoughts and insight on it today. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Uh, okay, Gordon Comer there, Crown Counsel with the BC Prosecution Service, talking about the investigation into the Stanley Cup riot in 2011 which was 10 years ago today. Hundreds of charges, hundreds of convictions there. We're getting lots of calls on the buzz line today with your thoughts and memories on the Stanley Cup riot. Let's have a listen to some of them right now. I was back in Ireland at the time, visiting family with my late husband. Her daughter phoning us around 7 a.m. Irish time, which would have been 11 p.m. Vancouver time, giving us a run commentary as she was watching the local news. And she had gone downtown earlier with friends, but left before things had got out of control. And her families, who had been visited Vancouver lots of times, were as shocked as we were. Booze, 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 booze. There is a way too much drinking at every event. We continue talking about the 10-year anniversary of the Stanley Cup riot in 2011. 
downtown Vancouver's mayhem 10 years ago today after the Canucks loss in the Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, of course, to the Boston Bruins. All right, if you go down by the Vancouver Art Gallery, there is an installation you can uh, see there uh, in memory of the riot 10 years ago today. Uh, let's check in with Asia Youngman now as a young filmmaker. Hi, Asia. Mike, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me about your display or your installation you've got, you guys have got going there in front of the art gallery. Sure. So my co-collaborator, Kat Jamie, and I have organized this installation to acknowledge and reflect on what happened 10 years ago. So um, we set up a large LED screen with footage from that day. And in addition, we borrowed some of the plywood boards that were used to cover up the broken windows of the bay that people wrote on the day after the riot. So those boards are on loan from the Museum of Vancouver, and we invited people down to just come down and share their thoughts and reflections and memories from that night. Wow, that's amazing. I think a lot of people will remember how a lot of those stores were boarded up and then people came down and not only helped to clean up, but they left inspiring messages written on that plywood, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think like although it was such like a horrible night and, and just a tragic event for, for all of us, I think just that showcase of how, you know, we can gather as a community and, you know, get together and clean up and, and share messages of hope as well. Okay, so when people go down there, they'll see these are the actual the actual plywood boards that were put up after the riot, and they've been preserved in a museum, right? Yeah, the museum has quite a few of the boards still left there, so we're really lucky to borrow them for the day. Um, and we have about six of the boards um, from the museum. So I think it's great for people because they want to come down and see if the message that they wrote on the boards is there. Um, and in addition, just share some thoughts and see how maybe their thoughts have changed over the past 10 years. Right, and what are what are some of the messages that you see? If people go down there to check this out, what will they see down there? I mean, it's a variety. I think some people, you know, there's lots of emotions involved in that night. I think some people still have a bit of anger. I think some people now, you know, maybe have a bit of empathy towards some of the folks who are involved, um, just acknowledging the mob mentality and all the different factors. You know, I think people still have their opinions on, on you know, maybe... We're trying to avoid pointing fingers, but I think some people have their opinions on, you know, maybe what went wrong for us, especially because, you know, this not only happened once, but it happened twice in Vancouver. Yeah, right, right. Okay, how long will your installation uh, be down there in front of the museum? It was just for the day. Um, so okay. our team, yeah, team was there for until 9 p.m. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Okay, thanks so much, Mike. Okay, you bet. Thank you. That is Asia Youngman, who is a filmmaker talking about her display on the uh, 10-year anniversary of the Stanley Cup riot. Let's check in now with Barry Penner, British Columbia's former Attorney General. He was the AG when the riot happened, eh, Barry? Yes, good morning, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. What do you remember 10 years ago today? When did you find out that this thing was going on down there? I did find out that evening. I was actually in Vancouver that evening. Uh, I left before the riot started, I do recall walking across the street on Georgia, and uh, I, it was maybe about the end of the first period, maybe into the intermission, and uh, there were a lot of people there, and uh, you could feel there things were tense. Yeah. There was a definite apprehension in the air. Yeah, I mean, you could. I've heard this from a lot of people thinking back to that day. If they were in that area, you could feel this thing kind of building. I mean, people were. People started early. Let's put it that way. There was a lot of drinking going on, and a lot of the drinking got started early in the day. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, I, I recall some people getting uh, vocally upset, simply of people walking by, because, you know, momentarily you would be obscuring their view of the screens. 
and uh, there was no other way to get around the city except walking past uh, people. And and there were a number of people that uh, had no hesitation about quite vocally dis- expressing their displeasure with me and others that were uh, daring to walk down the sidewalk. Okay, so in your role as Attorney General at that time, what was your immediate priority after this event? I, what I'd imagined was that we would have a large number of people in custody. Um, and so that night I was on the phone to my deputy minister and assistant deputy minister uh, saying, please make sure we spare no resources in terms of having prosecutors in early uh, on overtime if required to do charge approval. Uh, in British Columbia, the police write up the reports, but it's actually Crown Council that authorized criminal charges. And so I was expecting there might be a lot of people held overnight in custody and that there would be a lot of charge approvals to go through. Um, and in fact, to my surprise, uh, there were fewer people in custody come the next morning than there is on a normal day. And that's because the city of Vancouver police resources were pulled away from routine policing matters. And we're all focused on trying to contain the riot. So there are actually fewer people in custody the following morning, shockingly, than would normally be the case because not many people got arrested at the time of the actual riot. Uh, what followed, obviously, in the months and uh, many months after that was really break, breakthrough uh, technology use, at least in British Columbia. It's really a first that we made a lot of use of advanced analytics using the many thousands of photographic and video images that the police and Crown Council were, were able to collect. So it was really a, kind of a, a first of its kind for British Columbia, making that much use yeah. of uh, digital face uh, recognition technology and software in order to identify people that were smashing windows and causing damage. Barry Penner, thanks for coming on with your memories on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Okay, that's Barry Penner there, BC's former Attorney General. He was Attorney General uh, 10 years ago today. When, of course, the Stanley Cup riot occurred to Vancouver's shame. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's continue with our look back at Vancouver's night of infamy. The 2011 Stanley Cup riot exactly 10 years ago today. Okay, let's flash back now to June 15th, 2011. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News and Chris Galis. We just had another line of police uh, show up right here at the corner of Georgia and Homer. They've established uh, and cle- they've established a line, cleared out the intersection here, and they've brought out the big speaker that you referenced earlier, uh, encouraging the crowd to disperse over the loudspeaker. Tony, I think, has got a shot of the big fire that's been burning right down in front of the Canada Post building there. And we continually hear these big bangs or booms, and I don't know if those are flashbangs that the police are using to help disperse the crowd or whether those are whether those are fireworks and uh, it seems like uh, it, maybe it's a combination of both oh man what a wild and crazy night 10 years ago today my next guest had a unique perspective on the riot former vancouver police officer doug spencer over 30 years with the vpd and he was on the scene of the riot exactly 10 years ago today he joins me now doug thanks a lot for coming on thanks mike Okay, Doug, let's flash back today, 10 years ago today, back when you were a Vancouver police officer. Were you on duty that night? Yeah, I was. I was working plain clothes, and uh, when it broke out, we were just about to get a search warrant and go and get some guns off some gangsters up in uh, East Van. Wow. And uh, we were called and said, hey, there's a riot downtown. Get down to the police station. Everybody's mustering. 
Okay, did you have any indication that this thing was brewing and, and it could turn into a riot? Yeah, on the whole drive down from where we were going to get the search warrant, uh, you could hear the talk in the radio, and uh, it, it had certainly begun. There was a lot of radio talk asking for cover and officers needing help and stuff. Okay, so you were in plain clothes that night as a detective. I know you were uh, with the gang, anti-gang unit back then. Did you have to go and get some, like, did you go right down to the scene in plain clothes, or did you go and pick up some body armor, or what? Yeah, no, I always wore a vest dealing with gangsters. But, <laughs> um, yeah, they actually used me and my partner to uh, mix in kind of undercover with all the uh, rioters down on Gramble. Wow, okay, what was that like? What did you see down there? Uh, it was pretty hairy. It was like a war. I, I felt like I was in, uh, you know, Nicaragua in the middle of a war or something. It was just unbelievable to me. But, you know, you got to kind of keep your cool head. You got to kind of act like a, a rioter and fit in. Uh, it was a pretty weird situation, I must say. Okay, so when you say you were in plain clothes that night and you were kind of acting almost undercover, so were you? Did you have a radio with you? Were you telling police, like giving them heads up where stuff, what stuff was going on? Yeah, they, they yeah. sent us down because uh, a police car had been flipped over and they thought a, a member was in it. So wow. we ran down and we were able to get close enough to see there was nobody in the vehicle, uh, and then we called rate we on the radio called in. Uh, other members, and they basically ran down Gramble Street to this rioting group and uh, split them all up, and I had to watch out. I, I might have got conked in the head, right, because uh, it, it was just an all-out war. So we had to actually run and go and kind of hide. Okay, police were kind of outnumbered that night, were they not? Oh, yeah, terribly. On Gramble, there was maybe uh, 40 or 50 officers. There was thousands of kids. Yeah. Literally thousands. And they were, they had just demolished a building on Granville, And uh, they were picking up all the demolished bricks and stuff from this old building and were throwing them at the police. And some of them had no riot gear on it. It was really dangerous. Speaking of Vancouver, former Vancouver Police Department, Officer Doug Spencer about the Stanley Cup riot 10 years ago tonight. What was kind of the, you said it was kind of a hairy scene. What was some of the stuff that you witnessed? What kind of stuff was going on that you saw? Yeah, well, the uh, there was one guy that was kind of leading the police car being turned over, and he was quite vocal. He was obviously a leader. And when the police ran at him, the uniform members, uh, I chased him into a laneway and caught him and arrested him actually for inciting a riot and started dragging him back up the alley. And uh, some of the rioters saw now that I was a policeman and they started chasing me. I had to abandon the guy with my handcuffs on him (laughs) and run for my life. It was like really crazy. I never did get those handcuffs back. Oh man. How many people were chasing you? Um, probably 50 or 60. Wow. Thank, catch- thank God I was younger and a little, little more fleet of foot back then, and uh, <laughs> I was able to run back up to the uniforms. Okay, so you said that you uh, arrested this guy who had, was one of the guys flipping over a police car and put the cuffs on him. What happened to that guy? 
Never heard. Because I, I obviously had no time to even get his name or anything. And uh, I don't know if he must have had somebody cut the handcuffs off him or something. He'd have some explaining to do, I guess. But, uh, yeah, never caught up with him. Uh, I did see an, on Granville later in the evening a, a drunken woman climb into the uh, employee, BCTEL employees building at uh, Seymour in Georgia and come back out. She went in and stole a bunch of stuff. Like, you know, didn't, didn't know I was a policeman. And I went and arrested her for breaking and entering and theft. And uh, she eventually was arrested on a Canada-wide warrant. She was actually out here from Ontario, but she was just so drunk. You know, typical with about 90% of the people down there. They're so drunk, they're doing stuff that they probably normally never would do. Right. Right. How did this happen? Like, when you look back on it now, Doug, 10 years later, there was a big post-mortem after this event. Were the police underprepared? Could they have anticipated this happening? Why do you think this happened? Well, it, it, it happened for certain. They, the uh, Olympics had happened with no issues. No. So they thought they could do the same thing, at, but with less manpower. So they cut down the amount of policemen called out, and they tried this technique that they use in uh, England when they monitor soccer games and stuff, and it was just a complete flop. So basically they pinched pennies and tried to save money very similar to what's going on now with defunding the police. If the, you don't have enough policemen doing the job, the shit's going to hit the fan, basically. And it did. And, you know, an hour into the uh, hockey game, sergeants and NCOs down at the scene where they're drinking out in the uh, hot sun were saying, you better get more policemen down here. This crowd's getting out of control. And those... Uh, uh, that stuff was ignored. Was there any indication earlier than that, Doug, like the day before or that morning that, look, if the Canucks don't win tonight, this is going to turn nasty. Hell, maybe if they even won the cup that night, it would have been crazy and violent too. But certainly if they lost that game seven, you knew the crowd was going to turn nasty. I mean, were people, there were predictions that that could have happened. Oh, yeah, we were talking to young little gang kids, and they were saying a week before the game that uh, if the Canucks win or lose, we're going to get a bunch of free stuff. And it was just going to be, you knew it was going to happen. And, again, we were telling the bosses, you know, make sure there's enough policemen down there. This thing could go sideways really, really fast. And, of course, when you got a a heated out in the middle of the sun drinking all day crowd it, it's common sense it was going to go sideways but uh you know they want to save money okay was that a violent crowd did any of your co-workers fellow police officers that you knew get injured that night oh yeah a number of them got injured yeah. uh, you know and they say there was i don't know what they said you know 11 or 17 members are injured you're probably talking 50 or 60, right? And the members just sucked it up because you had to. You're basically protecting lives. I saw policemen putting themselves between crowds and 
injured people on the ground, severely injured people, risking their lives. Yeah, what a crazy night. It was Vancouver's night of infamy for sure. You were right in the thick of it there, Doug. Thanks a lot for coming on with your memories of it today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, I'm glad I lived through it, my brother. (laughs) Okay, all right. Thanks a lot, Doug. That's Doug Spencer there former police officer with the Vancouver Police Department. He was on the scene that night, 10 years ago today, the 2011 Stanley Cup riot. This is Mike Smith. More after this. All right, the Stanley Cup riot 10 years ago today. Maybe the most memorable photo that night, the famous kissing couple, our own John Jan, caught up with both of them 10 years later. John. Good morning, Mike. Ten years ago today, the world witnessed our city engulfed in smoke and flame with control of our streets split between riot police and an angry mob. And while many photos and videos were taken that night detailing the 2011 Stanley Cup riot, none are as iconic as the kissing couple. He is Scott Jones. She is Alex Thomas. This is the story of a silver lining and a dark Vancouver cloud. Scott, Alex, here we are 10 years later, and that photo has stood the test of time. It's a simple enough shot. The two of you on the ground, with riot police in the fore and background, and while the rest of the world looks at this photo and sees this very tender moment, I'm sure that for the both of you, it's a much more chaotic memory. Yeah, I probably didn't, uh, wasn't running through my head, oh, that's so sweet when, when Scott likes to be me. Uh, kids and, and trying to comfort me. I was pretty worked up at that point. Uh, pretty scared and worried. I'd been knocked down. So uh, I don't think I was thinking about how thoughtful that was of him until after the fact. Yeah, it, it was a very intense situation. And obviously, uh, directly after we'd been knocked down by the police, I was on top of it and like, they were you know, hitting us to try and move us on. And then, um, then they moved on with the other line of the police. And then, yeah, you've got your girlfriend there <laughs> crying and <laughs> hysterical. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, you don't even think about it. You just kiss her to sort of calm her down and talk to her and try to, you know, I think we were on the on the ground for quite some time afterwards because um, <clears throat> um, there, was, <laughs> there was no need to move at that point. And, um, yeah, just, uh, just try and get, gather our, our thoughts and decide where, where to go from there. What does that photo mean to you now when you look back at the moment 10 years later, having gone through all of the emotions and the experiences ever since? So I guess, I mean, it's a pretty interesting moment. It's, it's a long way in the past now, 10 years. So I guess you know, it doesn't come up very often um, in Australia. There's not a huge number of hockey fans just running around Perth. But, you know, it's, um, it was an interesting part of our, our lives, you know, some, an experience that We'll never forget the moment, but also the aftermath of the photo and all of the uh, interests surrounding it. So, yeah, we don't look back on it negatively. Rich Lamb was the photojournalist who happened to take that iconic photo, one of the thousands, I'm sure, that he took that night documenting what was happening in Vancouver. Did you ever get the chance to meet him and talk about the significance of that particular photo? Yeah, we were lucky before we left for Vancouver, we actually met up with Rich in a coffee shop and um, just had a chat with him about, you know, the momentum around the photo and um, what, you know, having a a viral photo meant. And he gave us a couple of printed copies of the the photo for us to keep, which was, which was great. Um, And we still keep in touch, you know, every so often we're, we're 
Facebook and Instagram friends. So we'll have a bit of a chat and uh, just see what he's up to with his travels um, around the world doing sports commentary. And uh, he'll just check in and see how our family is doing. So yeah, I guess we did get a chance to, to get to know him a little bit. How did he explain the reason as to why he took the photo? Uh, he just saw us on the on the road and thought we'd been injured, and that's why he took the photo. So he took just a lot of photos in, in quick succession because then he had to move on because the police were coming towards him. Um, so, yeah, it was only, as Alex said, when we was looking through them later that he sort of caught that moment. And we had no idea that he'd taken the photo until somebody tagged us on Facebook and said, that's not you. You're wearing the same things you wore to our party last night. From that night to this point, what happened in the immediate aftermath the following morning and what brought you eventually over to Perth, Western Australia? Yeah, so um, after after the, the, the riots and all that, um, we, we'd already been planning to move back to Melbourne, which we did, because uh, that's where I was living at the time. Um, so we were there for about five years and then um, we moved back to Perth, which is where I, I'm originally from, where all my family is. Um, with the with the idea that we were going to um, open a craft beer bar and uh, start start a family, um, and so I guess another five years later, here we are. We've had a we've had a kid. She just turned three, um, and yeah, we've uh, got a um, as I said, a, a bar in uh, very close to us in Fremantle. Um, it's a craft beer bar um, that's coming up on uh, being open for about two years. Been pretty difficult through the whole pandemic right. situation, but um, yeah, it's going pretty well. Yeah. All right, my thanks to John Jang there. Great interview. Thanks a lot for spending some time with me today. My thanks to John Jang, Tim French, and Sarah Hyde. My name is Mike Smith. Please send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Hope you have a great afternoon and evening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Take care.